had Ned Bolting, Paul Tucker, in the football library. And you won't know who he is. He's a friend of mine. We used to do the Ronnie and Ramage Watford football podcast together. And he is a proper cyclist. He's a mammal. He's 40. He's got all the gear. All the gear and loads of ideas. Ticks all the boxes. Quite right. And he is an enormous supporter of your work in cycling. I imagine he's read one or more of your books. Uh, which, are, yeah. Yeah, which are also in the football library because they've got your name on it and your face is on the cover of Square yes. Peg's Round Ball, Football, TV and Me. A wonderful journey through football. If Henry Winter likes it, uh, then it's on the football library shelves. But um, he asks, who would be your super domestique in the Alps in football oh, terms? A... Which footballers would you choose? Oh, I see. Okay, so if I'm... Right, well, that's kind of hard, isn't it, to crowbar to two more completely different sports you could hardly get. Um, but if you take the analogy that, uh, yeah, I mean, that a football team could operate a bit like a cycling team, so you've got 11 players all really working to the benefit of one player, so one protected player. You've got Lionel Messi. So Barcelona essentially not really have no other purpose other than to get... Lionel Messi, the Ballon d'Or every year. That's kind of you got to, That's the paradigm shift you've got to kind of entertain here. So Busquets, for example, is your prime super domestique. Yeah, Busquets in that Barcelona team did all the dirty work, all the hard work to make sure that the ball broke free, punted upfield, not punted. That's exactly the wrong word. <laughs> um, stroked, stroked upfield by the likes of Iniesta and Xavi uh, towards. Uh, the man in the yellow jersey, which was Lionel Messi. Very so good. essentially, I, I've never really come across a football team more like a, a Tour de France winning cycling team than that great Barcelona outfit. Because whilst they were all fantastic and they won everything put in front of them, it was actually all about one man. <laughs> so off the off the um, uh, yeah, yeah off the cuff, yeah. that's my best possible answer. That's very good um, because you ask in your former career as a football yeah. reporter, that's what you had to do. You had to bamboozle people, um, and you describe it lovingly uh, and with distance in this book, yeah. which is out on Bloomsbury, which um, I once ran into Matt Lowing, who is the Bloomsbury Sport editor in uh, Waterstones. And so oh, yeah. he was just checking out stock. And I know that Bloomsbury, it's almost like Excel. You know how Excel record, records release like five records a, a year? That's what Bloomsbury yes. Sport does. I would imagine he was probably in Waterstones. He was probably quite embarrassed to be spotted mm. by you because he was probably just um, rearranging the books on the shelf, wasn't he? To give his own books a little bit more prominence because that's a well-known trick. I would imagine, yes. And I'm yeah. sure Pitch Publishing will do the same and I will do the same when my book, that I'm not here to talk about because we're here to talk about your book, comes out. I've written this book about the Youth Cup. Um, oh, have you? Have yeah. you? From night, from okay. a, yeah, which is um, out May the 16th. It Very good. It does have... Do you, do you touch on Michael Carrick? And the West Ham yep. team winning the, the FA Youth Cup. There's a, there's a shot, there's some footage of, of that. So I remember actually from interviewing Michael Carrick years and years and years ago when he's a very young man and he'd just broken through into the West Ham first team proper and was making a real name for himself. He pleaded with me, or rather his parents, that's right, his parents yeah. pleaded with me not to include the shot of him lifting the FA Youth Cup up uh, because... In their words, he squealed like a baby when he lifted the cup up. Um, so I had to, I had to include the shot, but uh, but but cheat the um, the sound edit so that Michael Carrick wasn't revealed to the watching public to have squealed like a baby. Well, you, so you could have. That's my, 
apparently you could have overdubbed Ian Wright's celebration at the training ground. Henry Winter um, collaborated with Carrick on his excellent book Between the Lines and I sourced all the Youth Cup stuff from that. 9-0 they won that final. And when they got back to training, Ian Wright was squealing with delight that the the kids had won. And you must have come across Wrighty in your time. Well, he was... He was the very first player I ever interviewed. Uh-huh. <laughs> right back in, I think, 1998, where he would been, he was at the absolute height of his powers, I would imagine. And, um, and he was a, reg- quite a regular for England around about then, I think. Or if I got that wrong, can't quite remember, but certainly knocking on the door. Anyway, he was a superstar, wasn't he, um, Ian, right back then? And not only was he a superstar, but even back then, even before he became the erudite and wonderful poetic pundit that he is these days, he was an incredibly compelling person to listen to when he was interviewed. So I really couldn't have asked for a more, an easier or a softer first, yeah. um, first interview to ever do because all he had to do with writing was just stick a microphone in front of him and off he went. Besides, it wasn't even in the context of a football match or a training ground. I actually interviewed him at a fashion show in Earl's Court backstage where he'd been trying on all these elaborate kind of um, togs and jackets and winkle picker shoes and all that sort of thing. So he was, he was in his absolute element as a kind of golden toothed show off. And it was brilliant. So that is magnificent. My, my brother played football with Miles Anderson and Jerome is his agent. Uh, still. Oh right, okay, um, right, yes. But I, I, yes, I've read Ian Wright's but Mr. Pigden. Say that again. That was quite. That was quite tenuous. No, not that you, tenuous. My right. brother played Jewish football when he was about ten. Miles Anderson right. was on the team, and Miles's dad Jerome was at his absolute peak in that era of two thousand. Yeah. I'm sorry, I, st- I stand by my point. That's quite tenuous. I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but to claim that is anything other than. Really, extremely tenuous is disingenuous. No, that is. You're quite right, and um, yeah. I'm sure when you've yeah. been scripting stuff, you've clung onto the the strings of of the straws <laughs> of, of of linkage. Uh, can I say yeah. at this point, before we go back to cycling and punditry, your book Heart of Darkness is one of my favourite books. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. It's the it's my favourite book I've ever. Well, I shouldn't be really saying that, having just been talking. There about is a new one, Square Peg Ramble. Oh. You've just written it. You're too close to it. Oh. I think. A Heart of Darkness um, has been read by almost nobody uh, because it's about darts and darts isn't a very bookish public. But um, thank you for saying that. And I'm really glad to finally meet a reader because I'm incredibly proud of that book and I really enjoyed writing it. Thank you. No, no, thank you for writing it because it's a you kind of become an Ishmael figure looking for Eric um, throughout <laughs> yeah. the book. That's one of the strats and it's it's brilliant. I hope it's filmed. Bullseyes, well, boozers, and modern Britain, and it is all of them things. Well, I'll tell you the story of how that came about, if I may, and I'm, I'm sure we can get it back to football eventually. But Heart of Darkness. So, um, the, the t- we were searching. I was right. I've been writing the book for the best part of a year, and we were searching around for the right title for the book, which is essentially a first-person exploration of the entire world of darts. And my editor foisted the title of Heart of Darkness on me, um, which I had to confess was a kind of very workable pun. I didn't like it particularly, but I had to confess it kind of worked. And that set me off on a train of thought. And I thought, well. Uh, the first thing I need to do is reread Joseph Conrad's master, 19th century masterpiece, Heart of Darkness, of course, which is the film that Apocalypse Now is based upon. And I reread that and I thought, this, there are extraordinary parallels between um, the story of Apocalypse Now, stroke, Heart of Darkness, and my own personal journey up the river of exploration towards this mysterious figure in the darts world. And I decided that the part of Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, Kurt 
Colonel Cutts uh, would be played by Eric Bristow in real life. So it became a kind of mission to, to track down Eric and to meet him face to face, which I kind of did at the end of the book, but I won't, I won't give you a spoiler. No, and it's all the better for not knowing what happened then. I remember taking it out of Watford Library. Uh, it must have been over Christmas 2018 because I was working at the Coliseum at the time and the library was next door. I went in and went, oh, Ned Bolting's written a book. I like his work, especially the oh, new book, you. Square Peg Round Ball, Football TV and Me, which <laughs> is on the shelves of the football library. Look, we've got to plug your tour as well, so the plugging is not going to stop. No, um, it's relentless. Yeah, and at, relentless. Some, at some point we're going to have to talk about the content of the book. But I also... Uh, plucked out the Velosaurus, which is in Watford Library as well. So that's 8p coming your way for withdrawal Thank fees. Thank you very much. Um, Fantastic. That's I good. can't. I couldn't remember the name of what the French call British riders. So what do they call like Froome and Gagan Hart and Geraint Thomas? Oh, in in the Velosaurus. Yeah. Oh blimey! You're testing me now. I can't remember. I can't remember. You'll have to tell me. No, 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 no. I can't remember either. I thought you'd know. You maybe you have one to no, hand. I can't. I have got one time, but it's, I'm wearing a pair of headphones and it's slightly too high up on my, high up on my bookshelves oh, for well, me to reach. Well, this is, so, this is I where I have what, to say, get the book out of the library, because it's one of... Now, you said on Twitter you've published six books. I make it seven. Which one aren't you counting? Um, I, I've published an e-book, which I don't really count, um, called How Cav Won the Green Jersey, but I think it was just released really fundamentally as a... As a, as a Kindle book in 2011. So I don't really count that. So I think I've written 101 Damnations about the Tour de France. I think I've written On the Road Bike about British cycling. I think I've written How I Won the Yellow Jumper about the Tour de France. That's three. Heart of Darkness, four. Um, Velosaurus. Velosaurus, five. And this will be six. And they are all on the shelves of the Football Library. Uh, not far at all from Gary Inlap's book, my father and other working class heroes, which is one of the best the books of any genre, because it's not about yeah. football, it's a human story. And there are elements yeah. of what Gary's done in the early part of your book, because you talk I about... I suppose there are, I never thought about that, yeah, yeah I suppose there are. And yeah. also at the end, because there's a ring composition, George Best, who is on the cover, wearing the number 11 yeah. shirt, and it's actually hard to remember it's Best, because he's, he played number 7 for a while, but that is definitely his haircut. It is. And I will, I will at this point say that... Um, when I was younger, I didn't watch telly. I watched two things. The Champions League coverage on ITV and Gillette yeah. Soccer Saturday with Jeff Stelling. And so I, I know George Best as a laconic pundit yeah. uh, who yeah. died well before his allotted time, but packed a whole lot in. Um, yeah. Will you have served tea to George Best? I knew George fairly well. I mean, when I, when I started off, I started off at Soccer Saturday making tea initially and then and then kind of rising through the, 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 the ranks quite quickly and becoming one of the staff reporters. And George was part of the original panel on Soccer Saturday back a long time ago with Frank McClintock, Rodney Marsh, George Best, and occasionally Clive Allen or Phil Thompson would fill in the fourth seat. Um, often when George hadn't shown up because George was living through his own you know, personal turmoil that was entirely self-induced in lots of ways, but um, meant that he wasn't always there. And even when he did show up, he wasn't in a fit enough, well enough to actually take his place on the set. I mean, I'm very, I suppose I'm very honoured. No, I am very honoured and very grateful to have known him at a distance, admittedly, but known him reasonably well for a couple of years before we went our separate ways. And it wasn't long before George was dead. Um, but his presence, I think, of all the footballers and ex-footballers I've ever met in my kind of 20-odd years working in the game, I think he stands in a, in a category all of his own or 
because there was only one George Best, wasn't there? And um, there's a passage in the book where I describe my dad, who was a season ticket holder at Chelsea, um, back when Best was in his pomp. My dad telling me about, describing to me about how he remembers George Best coming to Stamford Bridge with Manchester United and tearing them apart. And I'm having this conversation with my dad on a mobile phone, sitting on a gantry high up in the stand in Stamford Bridge, sitting next to George Best. Um, and then when the conversation ends, I kind of turn to George and I say, that was my dad. <laughs> he reckons you were a half-decent player. And George had that twinkle in his eye and he said, yeah, yeah, I wasn't bad. I wasn't bad. Oh, that is a, one of many anecdotes. Um, I would hasten to compare it to Harry Redknapp's book of top, top players, which is just a series <laughs> of a series of dinner party anecdotes which will earn the publisher money because this is so much more than that. Uh, because... <laughs> It was. It was called A Man Walks Out to the Pitch, but come on. Amazing. Come on, top, top anecdote. You could have that one. Um, Top, top anecdote. Harry Harry Redknapp, by the way, can't write a word, four books. That's why the world... That is actually QED for your thesis about football, because this is an example of someone who was in the game, seeing the warts up close, and realised that he needs to be away from the warts. And uh, significantly, you say early on that uh, there are the three stages of watching football there's seeing footballers as normal and then realizing they're not normal and then realizing oh yeah they're actually normal terribly can you give an example (laughs) of someone of that (laughs) you've you've read it with um you've you've read it with precisely um what i had in mind uh kind of you've you've hit the nail on the head there um there is a confusion still to this day in my mind as to whether or not um, the modern footballer is a, no- is a normal human being or not. And it ex- but it extends behind, beyond my confusion of having met them face to face. I think it actually kind of filters into their own personalities and their own lives. And I suppose the best case in point would be the, the year of filming that I was very privileged to do with Stephen Gerrard uh, between 2005 and 2006 for a documentary that he was working on because his people had called it into life um and he was at the absolute height of his powers then and probably one of the very best players in the world to be perfectly honest and um i was very struck by the schism within gerard's own personality and his personality traits that there was a definite conflict between how he was as a private individual and he was and is a fiercely interesting and complex and really quite thoughtful and tough human being um and this public persona that he very very he tried very very carefully and still does i think um to control uh and his the adulation that he enjoyed in the at least the red half of of liverpool was incomparable with any other player in the modern era i think um and and it was fascinating to witness that kind of that conflict being played out on a daily basis uh in his in his personal life and he fascinated me as a character as i'd kind of watch him from a distance, yet quite close up in a funny way, um, in his kitchen, devoid of anything that resembled food, as he kind of struggled with a couple of slices of bread and some ham while he tried to make ham sandwiches for the crew. You know, it was a, it was a curiously intimate yet distant relationship, and it, it fascinated me greatly. And, it, and I think it said a lot about the way that we elevate these lads to a position that they're not prepared to occupy, really, and not, no one is, because, it, frankly, it's... Um, it's extraordinary what the, what their lives have become. You know, I, I call it the Michael Jackson theory because at no point in human history had as many eyeballs been on Michael Jackson. He was the most mm. viewed man in the world. Now the media's fragmented. 
mm. and there's something called ITV4, which... Um, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. More on which later. And but, ITV4 plus one, let's not forget oh, that. Course. Which is... Yeah, which yeah. is, you know, can be known can be known in certain courses as ITV5 if you're feeling playful. I, I would call it ITV5. But, yeah, Stephen <laughs> Gerrard, when, when he won the FA Cup in 2006, did he squeal like a girl when he went to lift the trophy? Uh, or was that left out or overdubbed by kind of Peya Yesu uh, on the film? I, I, would imagine, I would imagine it was overdubbed. I mean, um, Gerrard... It was just that, that particular FA Cup final in which he beat Alan Pardew's West Ham... Um, was, I mean, more than any other match I can think of in recent memory, an effort of one individual. Actually, we come back to the beginning of this conversation about Messi and Barcelona. You know, Gerard. it was not the same phenomenon, but Gerard was in many ways a one-man team, uh, to a certain extent in that Liverpool team. I mean, the Liverpool team that beat Milan in, in Istanbul was not a very good team. And I'd been um, with them every step of their Champions League campaign, uh, through all the group phases and stumbling into the, that amazing night against Olympiacos and then the semi-final against Chelsea, at, you know, over two legs, etc., and then ending up at, at, in Istanbul and winning it. But all along the way, you're looking at them going, how are they doing this? And it was evidenced by the fact that, um, if you remember, they didn't finish in the top four that year in the league, but yet they won the Champions League. And uh, their presence there in the Champions League the following year, bumped Everton out of the Champions League places and into the playoffs. So what Gerard did in that team was um, nothing short of extraordinary, I think, lifting them to single-handedly to a different level. That's right. Two memoirs with some quite big collaborators. Donald McRae did, I think, the second one. And, and I'm sure there'll be number three uh, once he moves Henry, to Henry, Liverpool Henry manager. Henry the first, didn't he? Henry, around about the time we were making that documentary, mm. I think Henry Winter was working with him on his first, ghostwriting his first autobiography. Mm -hmm. Henry, who had written John Barnes's book, and Henry, who has written 50 Years of Hurt, Why We Never Stop Believing, about the football team that you support, the England national team. And there's England a member national of team. the Ingerland fans with a traffic cone as a megaphone and a left, um, what is it? Is it a Coke? No, it's, it's unclear what drink it is. That's very good. Um, well, other I think it's are available. A, it's a, it, it, yeah, it's a shiny can of, of what, what is probably beer, let's be honest. Um, mm. But they have, I think the publishers have airbrushed the individual make of uh, Continental Lager from the image. But I think the, yeah, the, the character in question is bellowing through a traffic cone, using it in the style of a megaphone, but proudly wearing the three lions on his, uh, across his heart, really, in the centre of his chest. <laughs> three lions on his shirt. Uh, anonymous beer cans still gleaming. My friend yes. Sarah Bishop um, works yes. with Frank Skinner on uh, his right. podcasts and poetry shows. And Frank has turned into this kind of national treasure. And I must mention very quickly, because I wish we had more time, but you were at Cambridge and the calibre of people who were at university around the time you were there um, <laughs> include... Simon Munnery, Parsons and Naylor, Mel and Sue, Armstrong and Miller, yeah. Richard Osborne, Mitchell and Webb, Dan Mazer, who is um, Sasha Baron Cohen's mate, David Wollstonecroft, who invented spooks, and then a newspaper editor whose name I couldn't find. James Harding. Oh, James Harding was with you. I, he's at Tortoise. He's doing marvellous things he, with Tortoise. He's doing Tortoise. He's head of news at BBC. And before that, he was the, uh, I think he's one of the youngest ever editors of the Times. Uh, yeah, that's right. That is why um, Andrew Neil is now doing something with Tortoise because of the links there. And I'm sure um, Tortoise will be in touch with you about Square Peg Round Ball, which is £16.99 oh. from Bloomsbury. Football TV and me, the me being Ned Bolting. 
modern languages graduate in, is it German and French? German and French, yeah. German, right. My German's all right. My French is pretty hopeless, even though I spend every July in France. But I can get by in both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can you can speak kind of cycling ease. You know, a peloton. <laughs> I use the word peloton most yes. weeks because it's one of my favourite words. Because chasing pack, the kind of the the also runs. Um, yes. A peloton means so much. So you must say the word peloton every time the camera pans yes. to them. What is is there another term I should be using? So you've got the leader, yes. the peloton. Is bunch. There... Oh, yes. The bunch. But a bunch is a peloton. But you'd use a bunch if it was a slightly broken peloton, so it wasn't quite as big as the full peloton. And, of course, the word peloton is a peloton, is a French word. It's not an English word at all. But it means platoon. And so, it's, you know, it resembles a column of soldiers, basically. But, yeah, when it breaks up. But then there is a whole discussion in cycling as to when is a peloton the peloton and when is it not. When, it's just, when is it just a group? That's when is it a group so peloton? French. When is it breakaway? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas we could say, oh yeah, can he do it in the Yorkshire Dales on a Tuesday night? Not to, uh... although it was nice yeah. to know that um, Danish fans, Danish friends, will be able to see the tour. It starts on July the first. Um, yes. Through the first three stages are Denmark, a country I've never yes. been to, and would love to go. Will you check out Christiania? That seems like a place that um... I've been to. Christ- yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah. Hit people will go. Well, I've been to Christiania because. So I, I, you know, this does relate to my football journey in a sense because, and football hipsters will have their eyes wide open here because my real, my, my sort of, the thing that really triggered my love for football coming to it late was my discovery on my own terms because I lived in Hamburg in my early twenties of St. Pauli, Hamburg's famous second team, the the, the antithesis of the shiny yeah. monolith that is cu- SV Hamburg. A couple of books about this team. I'm sure there are yeah, because they are they're pretty unique in the in the in the footballing landscape for a start not least because they play in brown <laughs> a brown kit and at one time they were sponsored by Jack Daniels as well which is just brilliant mm-hmm. and they, their, their stadium is um is not far from the Ripperbahn in the red light district near the port in Hamburg um, where when I you know when I first got to know them shortly after German reunification honestly most of the fans were this really kind of rough and ready group of, of what they call Auto Norman in Germany. And are anarchists, really, squatters, um, left-wing activists, eco-warriors, um, that sort of thing. And they were very, they were very much there. They, they were trying to turn parts of Hamburg around the stadium, actually, into an informal version of Christiania in Copenhagen, which, for those listeners who don't know, uh, is a kind of, or certainly was, an autonomous state within a state founded by anarchists back in the day in Copenhagen and the authorities kind of allowed them to get on with it on their own terms for for quite a while didn't they I mean that's in a in a nutshell I think what Christiania is or certainly was and the fun fact I know about Christiania Lucas Graham once I was seven years old from that from a commune in Christiania well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. I, will, I will reiterate what my friend Paul Tucker said before I went out. I said, I'm talking to Ned Bolting at three because I knew he'd yes. know who you were. And he says he loves the podcast that you do, which is called uh, Never Strays Far. Good title. Never Strays Far, yeah. yeah. And you do yeah. it with the great David Miller. Well, I do it with David Miller anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Hang on. We're not having this kind of Bruce Ball, Chris Sutton badinage. That's what makes... <laughs> I quite like all that. I don't mm. mind that. 
I mean, I don't know. I don't mind. I know they get a lot of stick, but I quite like. I know, I mean, it comes as a complete revelation to me that Chris Sutton, beneath it all, was that kind of character. I had no idea. You know, I used to interview him when he was playing for Blackburn Rovers. No, did I? Surely he'd moved to Celtic by then. That might be a false memory. Um, but I, I do know that I've interviewed Chris Sutton back in his playing days, maybe towards Chelsea. the end of his career. Played for Chelsea. He was really inept for Chelsea. Yes, <laughs> yes as I'm sure he'll love you reminding him. Um, they were, but Chelsea yeah. had a habit back then of signing aged and inept strikers, didn't they? Flo. And it really lasted quite a long time. Well, he was Kazi quite Raggi. effective for them in a funny way. Kazi, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. They had um, the other Argentine guy there who was there with um, when Veron was signed, who wasn't very good when he went to Chelsea. Uh, what was Chris his name? Batis, ba- Batistuta. Did I Batistuta, yeah. Yeah, and they had, but don't, don't, it doesn't stop there. They they signed um, Laudrup, mm-hmm. Brian Laudrup, who didn't score for them. Um, they signed George Weyer. Yep, in and out. That? Yep, he yep. didn't didn't score for them. Um, and they signed Andrei Chevchenko, who didn't score for them. And Chris Sutton was just part of a long lineage of lumbering centre forwards who'd once been good. Maybe that's why they signed Werner because they knew you. So you. So Timo Werner is the current striker for Chelsea. I have to explain this to Ned because he called Jan Vertonghen yeah, Sam Vertonghen once. Yes, and I, I'd never heard of Aspi Lequeta. No, or, and, I or... know, I, and I don't know who you're talking about when you're referring to Mr. Ver, Werner. I really have no idea who you're talking about. No, so that's, you, you don't need to. It's, it's Chelsea. They're, they're, it, Chelsea are okay. a laughing stock. It's, it's terrible. And I'm actually... I'm well, you taking can't a... say that. They belong to the nation. They're nationalised, aren't they? You can't um, at the moment... Well, they belong to the fans at the moment. Um, but they're, yeah. they're going to the next billionaire owners. And it's, it's, oh, well, it won't nice. be Ken Bates, although Ken Bates may well have some kind of share in them still. <laughs> oh, he's, probably got, he's probably still earning money from them, isn't yep. he? Is he still alive, Ken Bates? I think so. I mean, he's one of those people. Friends of mine used to play Dead or Alive on air. <laughs> and I, right. think, I think Ken Bates is alive uh, because he was interviewed by Henry Winter just the other week. Okay, well, that would, that would suggest he's still alive. So, he's 19, 19. born on the 4th of December 1931 in Ealing. And his occupation apparently is businessman. Well, that is he, true. He banned me, Ken Bates. I got banned by him when he was the chairman at uh, Leeds United at Elland Road. I was told in no, no uncertain terms. He rang me up. I was on the M1 heading south and he, he rang me up and said, you're never coming back, son. Um, hmm. And I, I just, I'd been rather, I'd, I'd done a little bit of voiceover on ITV's flagship football league programme, The Championship, which used to be about the championship. And uh, I'd done a rather snide voiceover in my report about his domicile, his domiciliary status, mm. and the fact that, um, you know, though he was Monaco-based, uh, Leeds United were in terrible trouble with HMRC for unpaid tax uh, that they owed. Yeah. And I was, I was drawing an uncomfortable parallel, which earned me a ban. And I'm I don't sure... know whether you'll have to consult your lawyers before you put that bit in the podcast. No, like you that. know, if in doubt, leave it at. That is, that is yeah. the... I think I am allowed to say, you did tweet the possible first TV interview, and this was for ITV4, um, in 2009, with the current heavyweight champion of the world, we, he could be retiring. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. looks... He, Tyson Fury, with hair, looks really shy. The dad looks like the Gypsy King. Tyson looks kind yeah. of like the Gypsy Prince. I think that, and no one's contradicted me that that was his first. I mean, it, it, I, I was sent up there by a boxing program, and they'd run out of 
boxing reporters and they said, can you fill in a gap for us and go up and meet this kid because apparently he's going to be half decent. And I think he was either 19 or 20 when I went up and spent a day with him and the Fury family. Crikey, it was... Um, it was quite an experience, but it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, I've kind of lost track of the numbers of young sports people down the years I've profiled and you always end up with talking to one or other of their relatives or their, their, their coaches or something. And you'll always get a quote along the lines of, you know, this kid's got, the, got what it takes to be amongst the very best in the world and, you know, go on and achieve anything that they want to achieve in the game. Um, but very, very rarely does it come true. In, in Tyson Fury's case, it appears to have come spectacularly true, um, but it's it's quite an exception. You know, I, I think going back to you know doing doing the first big TV profile of, of young talent, I think I did that as well with Joe Cole when he was eighteen or even seventeen, breaking into the West Ham first team. And if you remember the amount of hype, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but no, the I'm amount of team. hype you're too young. The amount of hype involved. Around you know the, the the came with Joe Joe Cole's ascendancy into the West Ham first team was truly remarkable. You know he was the new Gascoigne, Best, Pele, all rolled into one. Um, and and though he had a very good career, it really it it never it never matched up to the promise that he showed back then. Um, which makes me feel rather sad actually because I think he's a lovely guy. Yeah. Um, but he came under huge amounts of pressure from very very early on to deliver possibly the undeliverable for England. He was one of the examples of modern footballers. I like to use the term postmodern footballer, like Aaron Ramsey. We never hear anything bad about Aaron Ramsey um, or someone like Bukayo Saka. 